scripture reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed out loud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, bagpipe, harp, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship and shall, shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, they declared to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There, certain Jews who came had who, who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship, in the Im to worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in to the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to, to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue us in this way. Then the king prom promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone give Cheryl a round of applause. So, some of y'all are going to sign up for the scripture reading team until we started Daniel. <laughs> because they are so long. Um, hopefully you have your Bibles there. And you're in Daniel chapter 3. Um, sometimes the Bible can be difficult to make sense of. Anybody agree with that statement? Okay, yeah. Uh, sometimes it can be difficult to understand. Sometimes... Um, even as a guy who like went to a college and majored in the Bible, went to seminary and ma got a master's in biblical studies and like I study it for a living, there are still times where I'm reading and I'm like, I gotta do some work to figure out what this means and then even more work to figure out how to apply it to my life. So I know if I feel that way, you do uh, too. I think Leviticus and Numbers are like the legends, for me at least, of the ones that are really difficult to make sense of, um, hard to find the meaning and the application the book of Judges has some of these as well, though. Um, anybody in, in the book of Judges right now in your Bible reading plan? All right, I'm with you. Some of you, one of you, Antonio, I'm with you, man. Um, there's this story in the book of Judges about a guy named Ehud, or Ehud, I don't know. And uh, Ehud, we'll go with that. Uh, Ehud basically is given this assignment to assassinate the king of Moab, and so he hides a dagger in his cloak, 
and he's left-handed, so he's able to get it past the guards, and he sneaks up on this king while the king's taking a bath, and evidently the king was like really overweight, and so he gets the dagger, and he, he stabs him in the gut, and his gut surrounds the entire dagger, and so Ehud just lets go of it, and it's just all in his gut. And let me just read this for you. Judges 3.22. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. <laughs> so if you're in the Bible reading plan that I'm in, um, and you woke up, and you were like, I can't wait to spend some time with God today, can't wait to get in the Word and get a Word for my life, and I'm going to go out empowered, and you read that, like, what are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know? There's some work that it's going to have to be done. And I was reading it a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, man, this is really fascinating and disgusting and gory. Unless God is calling us to be dagger-carrying assassins, we got, we got to do something. We got to do a lot of work to apply this to our lives. The Old Testament is really tough because the Old Testament was written thousands of years ago. Daniel, 2,500 years ago. It was written in all kinds of different genres and cultures and contexts. It's written in a couple of different languages that we don't even speak anymore unless you're a Bible geek like Caleb. You don't read the Bible in Hebrew, okay? You can't read Hebrew. I don't read it in Hebrew. That was like my worst class in seminary. Barely passed it. Um, it's really hard to figure out what this has to do with us. 2 Timothy 3.16 is this really important passage about the Bible and how we're supposed to think about the Bible. It says that all scriptures breathed out by God. It says that every single verse and I'm summing it up, is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training and righteousness. But if we're being honest, some stories feel harder to find that profit and harder to find that reward than others. And all of God's people said, amen. Got really good news for you today at the outset of this sermon. Daniel 3 is not one of those passages. And again, all God's people said, amen. amen. There you are. Yes, it was written 2,500 years ago. Yes, it was written in a different language and a different culture and a different context. And so much has changed since then. And yet, when I read Daniel 3, when I read Daniel 3, and maybe for you as well, doesn't it sound strangely familiar? You're like, nope. <laughs> nope. Okay, honestly, I, I feel like this is something that we could have read in the New York Times this past week if we just changed the details a little bit. Track with me for a second. Like if we replace the psychopathic king with a psychopathic Twitter mob, and if we replaced this random golden statue with one of our random gods in our culture, and if we replaced death by fiery furnace with death by cancellation, this is just another day in 21st century America, right? Our situation might not be as extreme, but it is almost exactly the same. We are exiles living in a culture with all kinds of different gods. We are exiles living in a culture with all kinds of different gods that seem to be getting bigger and bigger and the furnace seems to be getting hotter and hotter, and the pressure to bow down to those gods stronger and stronger. 
I would say that um, even though this was written 2,500 years ago, it's really easy for me to put myself in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's really easy for me to sympathize with them. It's really easy for me to imagine a little bit of what they were going through. And I would imagine it is for you too. I would say that it's not just easy to make these connections and apply them to our lives today. What I want to show you today is that it's actually vital that we make these connections and apply them to our lives today. It's, it's not just enough to sympathize with them. It's something even more than that. We've got to learn from them. And, and we've got to take what they had and what they did in their exile and their context in like the most extreme and desperate situation and apply them in ours as well, even though ours isn't as extreme. Daniel 3 is for you. Daniel 3 is for me as much as it was for Judah 2,500 years ago. It is a story about the people of God living in exile, no matter what generation that people of God is and no matter what geographical location they happen to be in. It's meant to be a guide that teaches us. It's meant to rebuke us and to correct us and to train us so that we might shine like stars in our exile. I would say that the number one way it shows us this and it teaches us how to do this is it shows us what it looks like to walk in faith. It's a lot of verses. It's, it's a longer story than we usually look at in one gathering. But at its core, it is all about what it looks like to walk in real and resolved and authentic and steadfast faith. And you need to get that today. And I need to get that today as the statues of our gods are getting bigger and the furnace is getting hotter and the pressure is getting stronger. We need to get what it looks like and what it means to have real, authentic, resolved faith. There are five characteristics of this faith that really stood out to me as I was studying this past week. And I want to walk you through this story by highlighting these five things. If you're taking notes just for the sake of outline, I'm going to show you five characteristics of real and resolved faith. And let me just say that don't panic. Normally I only have three things to show you and I have five things to show you and I know you're already like really nervous right now. Um, if you need to get up and use the bathroom, please feel free. I, I've been informed that as soon as I'm done preaching, there's a bottleneck at the ladies' bathroom. And, and I, I didn't know that till last week. I'm so sorry. If you need to get up, feel free, just go. And also, if you have young ones, if you have babies that are having a hard time listening to me, for an hour, we have a room um, right out, outside of that hallway with comfy couches and rocking chairs and refreshments, and there's a TV, and you can watch and listen from the comfort of that room. You don't have to be stressed out about your baby crying, and it will help you do your job. It will also help me do my job, because I always get really distracted. I think it's one of mine, and then I freak out. So if, you're, if your baby's having a hard time, please go to that room as well. Okay, with that being said, five things today. Are you ready? Okay, let's go. Real and resolved faith, number one, leads to courage in the public square. Now, if you look back at, at verse two, you'll see Nebuchadnezzar has not just built a monstrosity of a statue. It's 90 feet tall in our measurements today. But he has also called all of the movers and shakers of the kingdom to come and bow down and worship it. 
So all of these like weird titles, satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, that word treasurer literally means someone who carries treasure. So I heard one scholar describe that person as like a CEO of a five, Fortune 500 company. They're just a really wealthy person that has lots of treasure with them. These are the movers and shakers. All of the officials were invited to this dedication um, ceremony of a statue. So if you were anyone in Babylon that mattered, you were here. We don't know exactly how many people were at the ceremony, but it's safe to assume that it was in the thousands. Um, I heard one guy say millions. To me, that doesn't ring true, but you know what? We weren't there. Um, it's also safe to assume that of those thousands, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of exiles in attendance. Verse 4 actually tells us that there were a lot of different peoples and nations and languages present at this ceremony. And so these were people like Daniel and his friends who had been conquered by the Babylonians. They had been taken to Babylon because they were the best of the best of whatever their city was. They went through the three-year college program that Daniel and his friends went through. And now they're officials and they're leaders and they're judges and they're ruling all over the kingdom. They've all been gathered to bow down. Essentially what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he is trying to get all of these officials to affirm their loyalty to him and to his kingdom. And you know what's really fascinating? A couple weeks ago we saw that he had a vision about a statue. Do you remember that? Were you guys here? Some of you were. Um, he had a vision of a statue and there was a head that represented Babylon. The head was made of gold and there was silver, which was Persia coming afterward. And then there was bronze, and then there was clay, and there was iron, and it represented all of these subsequent kingdoms. And the vision essentially meant that Babylon is great, and it's gold, and it's awesome, and it's beautiful, but other kings and other kingdoms are coming after you. There's a definite end point to the kingdom of Babylon. And now Nebuchadnezzar is basically like, you know what? That sounds cool, but I, I'm going to do my best to keep this thing going as long as possible. And he knows, like, the number one threat to his kingdom is the number one threat really to every kingdom in a, in a pluralistic society, right? A pluralistic society says that there can be lots of different gods, and you can all worship whichever gods you want, and your truth is good for you, and your truth is good for you. But if one person or one religion comes along and says, we actually have the truth, well, that's a threat to a pluralistic society, right? And so... Nebuchadnezzar has gotten all of these officials from all of these conquered cities and countries with their pantheons of gods and Judas monotheistic, they have one God. And, and he has resurrected this statue, which is essentially represents Babylon. It's not necessarily like a specific God. It's not the serpent. It's Babylon. It's like a nationalistic bow to the unification of the kingdom. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to preserve his kingdom. He's trying to get all of these divergent views with all of their divergent gods to bow to one thing, which is the kingdom. It's really fascinating to me. Yahweh is okay. He showed me my dream. Teenagers got power that even my greatest sorcerers didn't have. So I believe in him. And in fact, he says, I'm going to worship Yahweh. But there's a caveat I'll worship your God and be okay with your God as long as you're okay with mine, too. That's what this statue is all about.
Now, this is a lose-lose situation for the people of God. And, and we can see that. Either you deny your Lord, who says, worship no other gods but me, or you deal with the consequences. What do you do? Either you bow your head, or you burn in the fire. Make this one teeny tiny concession or get consumed in the flames. I can just imagine all of the thoughts that were going through the exiles' heads in in that moment. Can't you, like I said, this is not a hard one to understand or to feel or to empathize with. I can imagine all of the thoughts and the excuses like, you know what, maybe I could just go through the motions and fake it. I mean, I can bow my head and not bow my heart, right? It's just a show. It's just an act. Like, actors are cool. We like them. I can just be an actor. God will understand. It's to save my own skin. I can worship God in private. Um, but I'm just going to go with the flow in public. I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. One commentator described it like this. Isn't a living dog better than a dead lion? Yeah, lions are cool and they're strong and they're brave, but if they're dead, they're useless. Wouldn't it be better if I was alive? Like, I could lead people to Christ with my influence and I could maintain my position and I could, I could change policy from the inside and I could, I could impact the whole kingdom. I, would, I bet they would have thought or asked something like, man, who would it actually hurt if I just bowed anyways? That's usually how we justify concessions. Oh, it's not hurting anyone. It's not a big deal. Like, no one is even going to care. If anything, guys, taking a stand might not only hurt them, but what if it hurt their families back home too? Like, what if there were repercussions beyond them? that they're men trying to provide for a wife, trying to provide for kids. Some of them were eunuchs, so maybe it was a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters, and maybe they were afraid, well, if I do this, then that puts my whole family in danger. How could I do that? And so out of the thousands of people in attendance, do you know how many people had the courage to stand? Three. Yeah. I mean, I've been asking God and myself all week, would I be one of those three? Now, if you're wondering where Daniel was, why there weren't four, Daniel had been promoted to the court of the king. He's actually side by side with Nebuchadnezzar. They are in the courtroom and they are watching this whole thing play out on the field. So there's only three. This is the point, guys. Real and resolved faith leads to courage in public because it recognizes that the God of gods is not just the God of your prayer closet. He is the God of heaven and earth. Real faith leads to courage in public because it recognizes that the God of gods is not just the God of your heart. 
but he is the God of your body too. His worship does not just require an internal posture. His worship requires an external practice as well. He will either have all of you or he will have none of you. I love how Maria Whitner once put it when she said, you have to live in a world of lies. You don't have a choice there. But it's your choice as to whether that world lives in you. Real faith, resolved faith, leads to the kind of courage that says, I'm not letting lies live inside of me. I'm walking in the truth. I'm going to take what's private, and I'm going to bring it out in the open. My allegiance to Jesus is not a secret. It won't be silenced. It won't be shut up, and it doesn't matter what happens to me. Guys, we need to hear this today because we are, and I need you to listen to this, and I know some of you aren't going to believe me, and that's okay, but still listen. We are entering into a season where allegiance to Christ and submission to Christ is going to cost us. We're entering a season, for example, where allegiance to Christ and submission to his view of sex and gender and marriage is going to cost us. We're entering a season where we're going to be told that it's okay to believe in Jesus and it's okay to believe in that antiquated book that's called His Word, but it's not okay to speak it in public. It's not okay to take it into the public square. Keep it in your prayer closet, keep it behind closed doors. We're entering into a phase in our exile that I would call the golden statue phase. And if you don't feel that yet, you're not paying attention. The God of radical individualism is this 90-foot monstrosity that our culture worships. It's built up. Everyone is being commanded to bow down, and if anyone has the audacity to stand and claim that there is actually a God who has a sovereign will, and one day we are all going to bow down to him and give an account for how we responded to that will, man, good luck. There might not be a literal furnace yet, but there's a furnace waiting. Guys, listen to me. It is so easy to follow Jesus when things are good. It is so easy to follow Jesus when things are comfortable. When I was in high school, oh man, you could be cool and Christian. It was the best. Real and resolved faith reveals itself when the persecution comes because it shows who is following Jesus for the things that they can get from God and who is following Jesus because he is God. Second Corinthians 2.15 puts it like this, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. In other words, when we bring Christ with us into the public square, his fragrance is coming with us. And his fragrance is going to draw some and his fragrance is going to disgust others. Real faith gives us the courage to do both and to be both no matter what. It's the first thing we see. Second, real faith leads to confidence in the power of God. Look back at verse 17. If that's the case, they're responding to the king. If you're going to throw us in the furnace, if that's the case, our God whom we serve is able, you could circle that word able, to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And there is so much certainty and confidence jam-packed in that statement. The king is somehow moved to mercy. Like, he's giving them a second chance. He's trying to give them a way out of this mess. He really likes them. They're good leaders. Maybe they had their headphones on while the music was playing. They didn't hear it. Like, he's just, he's trying to give them a way out. Listen, if you didn't hear it the first time, I'm going to play the music again. In five seconds, in five seconds, bow. And, and all of this will be forgotten. We'll just act like none of it ever happened. And almost in unison, they don't have to discuss it. They don't have to have a powwow. They were like, we don't have to talk about this. It's already settled. We're not bowing. So do your worst. This is the kind of certainty that real faith produces. Our God is powerful enough to save us. I read a story that illustrates this perfectly. One of my heroes of the faith, John G. Payton, and I, I've talked about him in the past. I don't know if I've ever shared this story before, but if I have, I apologize. Second time will impact you just as much, I'm sure. Um, John G. Payton, if you've never read his biography, man, you just need to buy it and read it. It'll change your life. But he and his wife were, were going to, to minister to this just unreached um, awful, pagan, cannibalistic uh, tribes off the New Hebrides Islands. And, um, and so they, were, they went there, they're, they're encamped, uh, they set up their camp, and they're, they're going to sleep for the night, and they, they hear a killing party coming and surrounding their tent. And the killing party does one thing, they kill. And so I, I don't know how this would make you feel. I get scared when I think someone's outside at night. Um, they knew that someone was outside at night, and they knew that those people were there to kill and eat them. And so they just get on their knees, and they just start praying that God would save them. They pray all through the night. Sun comes up. They're still alive. To their shock and amazement and thrill, they praise God. It's incredible. A year goes by, and the chief of the village that had sent the killing party converts to Jesus starts following Christ, and so this chief and, and, and John Payton are, are hanging out, and they're talking, and, and Payton's like, what kept you and your tribe from killing us that night a year ago? And the chief is like, what are you talking about? You had all of those men surrounding your tent. What do you mean, why didn't we kill you that night? Payton's like, what are you talking about? It was just my wife and myself. There were no men there. The chief argued and he protested and he said there were hundreds of big men 
in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands, and they seemed to circle the site so that all of us were terrified and we fled. Well, in that moment, they both realized what it was. It was the power of God. It was the miraculous power of God rescuing his servant. Do you believe, this is my question for you, do you believe that God is able to do whatever he wants in the world, whenever he wants in the world, including in your life? Do you believe that? I promise you it's true. 100%. You could take it to the bank just like these men did. And I remember um, when I was in El Salvador on a missions trip, and MS-13 was running rampant at this point in time. The government had totally kowtowed to them, and, and they were killing 50 people a week just to meet a random quota to instill fear in everyone's life in our city that we were staying in. And I didn't realize this, but we were staying in this compound that was like in one of the worst neighborhoods that you could be in. And we're driving up to our compound, and there's yellow tape, and there's a dead body right there. And we're like asking our guide, hey, what is that? And they're like, oh, that's just one of the 50 you know, they're doing this quota thing. Every single person we talked to on the streets as we were sharing the gospel said they were terrified that they were going to be killed every single day. Just random killings. And I remember I was talking to my guide, and my guide was just this, he's like 22, 23, young, single guy on fire for Jesus. And he was like, I'm taking the gospel to the gangs. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And so he just started going, going to these, like, there was this one street where there was, um, I think, it, uh, I'm not going to try to remember the gang's names anymore. It's probably wrong. Um, there were two different gangs. On, one was on this side, one was on this side. He's like, you did not want to be on this street. And I remember my friend saying that he prayed and prayed and prayed. And then finally, one of the gang members became a person of peace. And this person was like, I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to be your guide, and I'm going to walk you through these streets so you can just pray over these streets. And I remember my, my, my friend, my guide, he was like, I, I walked into the most terrifying street in the entire country of El Salvador with total confidence because of that guy that I had with me. Like, he was my protection, he was going to get me into the places I needed to be. He was going to keep me out of the places I shouldn't be. And if anyone looked at me sideways, he was there with me and they wouldn't touch me. I guess what I want you to see here is that these, these men understood to a, a small degree something about the presence and power of Christ. What you and I have on the other side of the cross is infinitely greater. That Jesus walks with us everywhere we go and not just with us, his spirit is in us, and his power is in us, and anything and everything that happens to us, oh man, it's actually a part of his plan, which we're going to get to in a minute because I know that's hard to, to, to grapple with. He is powerful. These men believed it. They had confidence in his ability and that confidence enabled them to stand. Guys, if you think that you serve a weak God, you'll never stand when you're facing the fire. And the big question is, is how big is your God? Third, real faith leads to conviction in spite of unpredictable outcomes. This is my favorite verse 
in this whole chapter, maybe the Old Testament. Look at this. But if not, our God is able to save us from the fire. Do your worst, king. We serve the God of gods, the Lord of lords. But if not, if he doesn't rescue us from the flames, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In other words, God is able to save us, but God is not obligated to save us. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he desires, and we cannot compel him to do what we desire. This is so important for us to wrap our minds around today because this is at the very core of what it means to have real faith. Because real faith doesn't have to put God to the test in order to stay intact. It is a settled faith. It is a certain faith, no matter what the outcome might be. What if God doesn't send the angels? What if God doesn't rescue you from the killing party? What if you end up like the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Which, by the way, when he was being trained by Jesus in the desert to prepare for his ministry, you know what Jesus showed him? All that he would suffer. Every time he went into a town or a village or a city, he knew what was going to happen to him before he got there. And if you've studied the life of the Apostle Paul, he went through a lot in all of those towns and villages and cities. He knew it was coming. What if you end up like that? What if you end up like Peter, who was crucified upside down? What if you end up like Atlas, who was thrown to the lions? What if you end up like Nicholas Ridley, who I named my son after. He's one of my favorite, favorite stories in church history. Nicholas Ridley Davy. I pray that he has the courage of this man someday. He's burnt at the stake under Bloody Mary. What about Jim Elliott and his friends? Nate Saint, who were killed the moment they stepped foot on the island. What if your story is not the story of the hundreds of giant men with flaming swords? What if your story is the story of the millions of Christians who have gone before you to their death for the name of Christ? Then what? Real faith is settled. Fire or not, God is still in control. Guys, this goes beyond persecution too, and I want to pivot just for a second. I mean, this gets into the nitty-gritty of every aspect of our lives, doesn't it? It forces us to wrestle with this question. What if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if God doesn't give me what I want? Or more importantly, what if God doesn't give me what I need? 
Guys, fickle faith and fraudulent faith is always putting God to the test and always trying to get him to prove himself to us. And if he doesn't prove himself to us, then we, we might have to renegotiate terms, reevaluate where we stand. Like either God answers my prayer or none of it's true. God, you either give me a spouse or I'm going to rethink your goodness and sovereignty in my life. God, you either give me a good job or get me into a good school or give me a house or give me a healthy body or give me a baby. If you don't do what I need you to do in my life right now, you and I are going to have a problem. I had a friend about 15 years ago went through something like this. He was a godly guy, led our Bible study, preached every once in a while in our college ministry, shared his faith. He was bold. He served in the church by all accounts. Real, resolved faith. We all looked up to him. Until his fiance broke up with him. I remember he was so mad because he had obeyed God and he had been pure and he tried to do things the right way and Submit to Jesus' sexual ethic, which is really hard in our culture. And so in his mind, God owed him a wife. Like that's the end result of obedience, right? You get what you want. It's a deal. His fiance ended it with him. And I remember he wrote an email to our college pastor and our leaders and just laced with bitterness and laced with contempt and laced with profanity. And it was just like, F the church, F God, I'm done. The good news is years later, he returned. But listen to this, you need to hear this. Fraudulent faith is dependent on positive outcomes. Real faith remains convinced in spite of negative outcomes. Fickle faith worships God for the good things he gives them. Resolved faith worships God even when he takes them away. Like Job in the Old Testament. Oh, he's only worshiping you because you've given him all of that stuff. He just loves you because, and you made him rich. You gave him a great wife. He's got tons of kids. He's got tons of servants. He's got tons of animals, all the cool things. What if you take them away? What if God doesn't give you what you want? What if God doesn't give you what you need? Is he still God? Real faith, guys, is the kind of faith that recognizes that God is able, but he's not obligated. And it prays for his will, not ours. That's how Jesus told us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Guys, listen to this. Real faith is convinced that God doesn't just give us no, if God doesn't give us what we want or what we need in the moment, it's because he knows something we don't know. 
It's because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It, it means if he isn't answering our prayer, it's because he's got a better view. He's got a better plan. We can only see what's right in front of us. He's got the whole thing. And he's promised that he's not only sovereign and he's not only God, but that he is good and he is merciful and his goodness is hunting you down and his mercy is hunting you down. So even if you can't see it, he's for you. These men believed that. They said, our God is able to save us, but he doesn't have to prove himself to us. And so my question for you today is, how about you? Fourth, real faith leads to closeness to the presence of Christ. Look back at verse 25. Look, the king answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Three men were thrown into the fire bound by a rope, and yet in spite of the flames, they're not only not hurt, not burned, their robes have been burnt off, nothing else, but now there's a fourth person and he looks like a son of the gods, which is the ancient's way of talking about divine beings. Someday we're going to do a series on this because it'll change your life. But it, they're, they're not actually saying there's the son of God. They don't know that a son of God exists. They just know that there's a divine being in the fire. Now what we know on the other side of the new covenant is that that actually is Yahweh Elohim embodied. That is the son of God. It's a Christophany. That was Jesus himself. The son of the gods really was the son of God. This is what I want you to see. Sometimes God doesn't eliminate the fire, but he will always join us in the fire. Every single time. And I want you to really believe this and lean into this right now. When he joins us in the fire, there is an experience of his presence unlike any other experience we can have this side of heaven. And I'm not saying I know this from experience yet. I know this by faith from the testimony of hundreds of men and women who've gone before me. Let me share a couple. This is what the, the Apostle Paul called the fellowship of suffering. As he's rotting in a Roman prison, he's awaiting his death. He writes this letter to the church at Philippi. We call it Philippians. And he's like, listen, guys, everything I had in my former life, all of the status, all of the fame, all of the glory, all of the education, everything that was over there, I count as, and he uses the word for a word I can't say because it's a bad word. We translate it dung in English. Use your imaginations. He said, all of that was like this in comparison to knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. What? Getting beat up in every village you walked into, getting stoned and whipped and imprisoned and shipwrecked and eventually killed. That The fellowship of suffering is better than all of that? He says, yes. Because there is an experience of the presence of Jesus that I can't describe. And there is a power and a peace and a joy and a hope that he gives in those moments. That's unlike anything that this earth has to offer. This is why men and women and children were able to go into the Colosseum under countless emperors singing hymns 
and rejoicing as the gates were lifted and beasts were let in to rip them to shreds. You read secular historians, you read Tacitus, you read Josephus, they all marvel at the fact that these men and women and children, even newborn babies, as they are being ripped to shred by lions and bears, are singing hymns and rejoicing. There is a supernatural resting of the Holy Spirit that comes to us when we suffer for Christ. And until we suffer for Christ, we don't know what that feels like. I mean, I'll tell you what, there have been times where I've woken up in my sleep with, with anxiety because I've had a nightmare about being tortured for Christ. Maybe I read too much about it. And I was just thinking like, oh, no, I literally woke up having this nightmare because I could not imagine how I could get through it. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom how I would be able to bear it. And I'm sure you're the same way. I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. Man, if I get a cold, the whole world knows about it, right? My wife is going to hear about it all day. I'm a wimp. The good news is that, guys, it doesn't matter how wimpy you are. It doesn't matter how scared you are. It doesn't matter how averse you are to pain. If you are suffering for Christ, there is a promise that you will not go into it alone, but you will experience him there. He will join you in the fire. You don't have to hold him fast. He will hold you fast. He will give you everything that you need. This is why Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian church, as he's being stoned by this angry mob, heaven is opened up and he sees the glory of God. It rests on him. He's being stoned and he's like, does not feel a thing. He's like, I'm on my way. And, and he's there. I read a story recently or heard a story uh, recently about a couple from the Middle East who went through all kinds of torture and pain because they were caught passing out Bibles and they were caught sharing the gospel. Afghanistan's the worst place to be a Christian right now, by the way. Pray for our brothers and sisters over there. The husband said the torture was so brutal. The effects were the efforts to brainwash him into recanting his faith were so intense that he could hardly bear it. But the incredible thing about this story was the fact that he said when the guards were in the midst of torturing him, he felt the presence of the Holy Spirit rest on him in a supernatural way that he had never experienced before. Get this. He said, while I was being tortured, the Spirit would give me a peace and a comfort and an endurance and a joy to bear all the pain I was facing. But when the torture was done, I would feel the special resting of the Spirit leave. experienced the power of God in a way that we can't even begin to imagine because he was participating in the sufferings of Christ. He understood what Paul was writing about fellowship. Guys, did you know that, I know you, I know you know, but did you know that when we refuse to bow to the gods of this age, we're actually following in Christ's footsteps? That's why the fellowship is so sweet. That's why he gives us his spirit. Remember, remember right before his ministry, he was in the desert. Remember that he too was told to bow down. You remember that he was told to 
fall to his knees and grovel at the feet of the serpent, the old god Bell. You remember? He was presented with a situation that from every earthly perspective looked like a lose-lose. Bow before the devil and get all of the kingdoms of the world or die on a cross and bear the wrath of God. And yet Jesus didn't bow. His faith was resolved. He stood firm. And then three years later, when the time came for his suffering, which did you know he called that the, the hour of his glory? Which that's another sermon by itself. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's crying out to God for a way out. He's begging the Father for rescue. And he's saying, I know you're able to spare me from the fire. So please, if there's any way, take this cup from me. And he prays it three times. In other words, I know you're able, so please do it. But then after the third time, what does he pray? Not my will, but your will be done. And so what is he saying? I know you're able, but you're not obligated. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to believe that the reward is on the other side of the fire. And that this moment of humiliation is actually the moment of my greatest glory. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk through it. And so the Son of God stepped into the fire. He drank the cup of God's wrath and he bore the sins of the world on his shoulders. His faith was settled in spite of the outcome. And so when we follow in his footsteps, when we suffer with him, when we're persecuted for him, his spirit is right there in us, holding us up because we are following in his footsteps and refusing to bow down. He will be close to those who suffer in his name. He might not eliminate the fire, but the one who stepped into the fire before us always enters it with us. We never go alone. Real faith leads to closeness, the presence of Christ. Finally, real faith leads to conversion of popular opinion. In spite of the fact that we're on our way to heaven, we care about Babylon. Caleb talked about this last week. Look back at the text. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want you to see what's happening here. The same king who is ready to execute these men for refusing to worship his God is now threatening any man who refuses to worship their God. Let me just say, he doesn't get it, okay? He'll get it in a little bit, a couple chapters, just wait. 
he, he actually ends up getting converted, which is awesome. He's not there yet. He's still threatening to kill people. Okay. Um, this is not the goal. Um, the point I want you to see, though, and this is an important point, is that the courage and the confidence and the conviction and the closeness that these men exhibited in the midst of the most desperate of situations revealed that their God was actually the God of gods. And so everything changed as a result of that. The entire kingdom of Babylon was impacted by their faith. Three men turned Babylon upside down. I guess you got to count David, Daniel too. Four. So much so, listen to this, guys. So much so that almost 600 years later, wise men from the east dedicated their lives to studying the stars. Wise men who were remnants of Babylon, the original Magi, Daniel. But they weren't studying the stars so that they could track the movements of the gods like their ancestors had done. They were studying the stars so that they could look for Judah's Messiah. The son of man who would heal and restore the nations. And then one night, 600 years after this whole furnace thing, after Babylon was flipped upside down, they're studying the stars, and then all of a sudden, the star of Bethlehem is there. And they're like, pack up the camels. He's here. Get the gifts. Get the gold. Get the frankincense. Get the myrrh. The Messiah of Judah is here. They were more ready for the Messiah than Judah was. I read a story this last year about the spread of the gospel in Slovakia in the 1980s, and I'll close with this. Evidently, hundreds of people had been led to Christ by faithful uh, men, and, and none more important than this guy named um, Kolakovich. Um, and he had endured all kinds of suffering, all kinds of pain during the communist regime. And yet he would slowly but surely win people to Christ, and then they would win people to Christ and they would win people to Christ and it would go on and on and on in this family tree, which is what I'm praying for every single one of you in this room, by the way, that you would have a family tree like this man. In 1988, the secret police called one of the leaders because evidently this, this movement had grown to about to, to hundreds of people and the secret police called one of these leaders and they said, you've got to stop talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you and your family. And uh, the leader just kind of laughed, and, and he was like, it's too late. The word's already out. It's already spreading. Like, you can kill me if you want, but, like, the family trees are just, they're, they're growing. 1988, after this movement had spread, this is now generations after Kolakovich, his spiritual grandchildren are now leading the underground church in Czechoslovakia. And in 1988, they organized this candlelight demonstration in Bratislava. Bratislava, sorry. It ended up being um, one of the largest protests in the country's history. The police used water cannons to disperse the thousands of Christians who showed up to pray and sing. They did everything they could to shut it down, but again, it was too late. The movement had already started. The word had already spread. 
And so within two years of that demonstration, communism was over in Czechoslovakia. One author put it this way. One of the men who had been saved by Kolkovich, one of the leaders of the underground church, he said it this way. You can build a whole country on 10 righteous people who are like pillars and like monuments. Because when people see someone acting courageously, they will act courageously. You can build a whole country with 10 men who have real faith, 10 women who have real faith, authentic faith, resolved faith, not fickle faith, not fraudulent faith, looking for what you can get from God, but what could God do with a room full of 200-something men and women who said, come what may, hell or a high water, God is God, and he will be worshipped, and I'm not worshipping any of the other gods. Throw me in the fire if you want. He can save me if he wants, but either way, I'm standing firm. What would happen to this country? What would happen to our cities? Guys, if you want to see change in our society, forget politics. Spiritual transformation leads to societal transformation. So if you want to see change out there, it starts in your heart and then it spreads to the hearts of others. Oh, what would it look like if we could be a church of people with real faith? Not silent faith, not comfortable faith, not consumeristic faith, not cool faith. The days of being Christian and being cool are done. And that's a good thing, guys. Because it's in this season. I pray this is me, I pray this is you. It's in this season that the real ones will stand firm and God will finally move again in this country. It's following these three men's footsteps. Ultimately, we're following in the footsteps of Christ. I want you to bow with me and I'm not gonna pray. I want you to pray where you are. I know the Spirit's been working in your heart even as his word's been preaching because he promises to do so every single time and he's been stirring in you something. And so you need to allow him to to rule and to reign in your heart right now. Talk to God. Confess what you need to confess. Ask for help where you need help. Ask for strength where you need strength. And submit where you need to submit. I'm going to let you pray and then we'll go to the table together.